Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on March 14, 2018, focusing on foreign-derived intangible income and understanding the benefits. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Shani Sean, a PwC tax partner also focusing on international tax issues, Paige Hill, a PDBC tax partner and leader of our transfer pricing practice, and Michael Lucky, a PDBC tax partner focusing on quantitative solutions. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the general framework of the new foreign-derived intangible income provision. So uh, I'm going to take everyone through and kick this discussion off by going through the concepts of what FDII is. Uh, so Section 250 provides a deduction to domestic corporations uh, equal to the lesser of, one, the domestic corporation's taxable income, or two, 37.5% of its FDII plus 50% of its guilty income inclusion. So you'll see that there is a you know, natural tie between FDI and guilty. Um, essentially, FDI is a mere provision of guilty. So if your FDII plus your guilty is uh, in excess of the domestic corporation's taxable income, then that excess amount reduces the FDII and guilty uh, proportionately. Legislative history tells us that uh, the deduction is only available to domestic C-corps. So therefore, it is not available for REITs or for RICs, uh, and also, for taxable years beginning after December 31st, 2025, the 37.5% FDII deduction rate goes down to 21.875%. And also for guilty, the 50% deduction goes down to 37.5%. So if you look at it effectively for taxable years this year, and for all remaining taxable years beginning before December 31st, 2025, a domestic corporation's FDII is taxed at a rate of 13.125%. And for taxable years after December 31st, 2025, the domestic corporation's FDII would be taxed at an effective rate of 16.406%. So the big components that comprise the FDII benefit calculation is the domestic corporation's deemed intangible income. That deemed intangible income is multiplied by a ratio, the ratio being the domestic corporation's foreign-derived deduction-eligible income as a numerator divided by the domestic corporation's deduction-eligible income. And here, the deduction-eligible income is important because not only is it the denominator in the ratio, but it is also the starting point for which the deemed intangible income is calculated on. We'll discuss in some more detail the calculation of the deemed intangible income in a few minutes, but just to go over briefly, the deemed intangible income of the domestic corporation is its deduction-eligible income less the domestic corporation's deemed tangible income. 
And that deemed tangible income is calculated based off of the domestic corporation's qualified business asset investment, or QBI. And that concept is very similar to QBI as determined for guilty purposes, but in this context, it's calculated for the domestic corporation versus for the CFCs. So what's deduction eligible income? It is the gross income of a domestic corporation less certain kickouts of certain items of income minus deductions properly allocable to that gross income. The specific items that are kicked out of the gross income bucket are the domestic corporation's subpart F inclusion, its guilty, its financial services income as defined under 904, which is essentially income derived by a taxpayer that is actively participating in the conduct of a financing, a banking, or insurance type of business. Other items that are specifically kicked out of gross income include dividends received by a U.S. shareholder of a CFC, domestic oil or gas income, and lastly, any foreign branch income described under Section 904. And here, we'll discuss further as a part of our other issues and observations part of the webcast. But as a preview, there's uncertainty surrounding how to determine the foreign branch income. When you look at the definition in Section 904, it provides that foreign branch income are business profits attributable to one or more qualified business units, or QBUs, and that the attribution of those business profits are going to be determined under rules prescribed by the Secretary. Without specific guidance on how those business profits are attributable to the QBUs, there are a variety of methods for which that attribution can be determined. For example, you could determine the attribution of profits under a Section 987 method, or under a profits allocation method. And depending on what transactions the QBUs engage in, applying one method versus the other can produce very different results. We'll also talk about the issues related to how to determine deductions that are properly allocable to gross income and what that means. Because the foreign-derived deduction-eligible income is a key driver for FDII, a good portion of our discussion is going to cover the issues related to how can we determine whether a transaction generates qualifying foreign-derived deduction-eligible income. The statute provides that foreign-derived deduction-eligible income is income derived by the taxpayer in connection with either property that is sold to a non-U.S. person for which the taxpayer establishes to the satisfaction of the secretary that it is for foreign use, or services provided by the taxpayer for which it establishes to the satisfaction of the secretary that it is provided to any person or with respect to any property that is located outside of the U.S. So you'll see here that there's a common theme between the two types of transactions, and it is that the taxpayer has to satisfy or establish to the satisfaction of the secretary their position. 
And so the big question is, what does that mean and how does a taxpayer establish that? We expect guidance to come out, uh, hopefully providing additional detail on what that means. The government has come out earlier in the year and provided that the guidance would be in the form of regulations. Uh, this may be on a lower priority list for the government, and so taxpayers may have to use analogous guidance in the meantime to defend their position. Well, Paige, I'm going to keep you going here with, All the, right. with the next slide. <laughs> Um, um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, foreign use. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more in terms of the detailed calculations as well. Um, as Shani mentioned, uh, the, the definition of foreign use is sale of property to a foreign-related party, um, such that it, or to a related party connection where it will be uh, further sold outside the United States. Um, and as well as the provision of services um, that are not the same as those services provided back to someone in the United States. Um, you know, I think what's important here, you know, again, as Shani mentioned, you know, how do you establish foreign use will be very, very important. Um, I think the other thing to bear in mind is, you know, similar to what we saw with guilty, the term foreign-derived intangible income uh, is not just for intangibles. Um, this is, is, is a broad uh, application to, you know, sales of property, uh, royalties, and services, um, provided you can demonstrate the foreign use. And, and also, this is not the same as foreign source income, um, you know, which is, I think, something companies are traditionally used to thinking about. So, so there's a lot broader um, pot, if you will, that, that can be potentially um, you know, eligible for the FDII. Um, but just to get into um, the deemed intangible return, and this is where, again, this is going to look a lot like guilty to, to those of you who've been through our, our guilty presentations. Um, so you first have to look at your deemed tangible income return, which is your qualified business asset investment, which is designed exactly the same way as it was for guilty, times 10%, which is exactly the same rate that was used for guilty. That's your deemed tangible return. And so then your deemed intangible income is the excess of your deduction eligible income, which we defined earlier, less that deemed tangible income return. Um, and so again, uh, completely analogous to guilty. I mean, I think what's interesting about this, too, is, you know, from a policy perspective, clearly they were trying to make people indifferent between having FDII income or guilty income. And I think what we're seeing is guilty may not always be um, so, while well, well, complex, and, and, and there will be a lot of guilty income in the system, may not be as punitive as I think people may have thought originally when they get in to look at their numbers. Um, and I think the other point there is that... Um, you know, given the inconsistencies of how states may tax um, guilty as subpart F income and, and what conformity happens there, it may not be on equal footing once you deal with the state tax issues. So again, it's, it's a little carrot. It's not necessarily <laughs> the, the big carrot that, that maybe people were thinking it would be. Um, and then just, again, to, to flow through the whole, the whole calculation here, um, you take your deduction eligible income, less your tangible income return. That's your deemed intangible income. You take that times your foreign-derived ratio, which we went through earlier, um, and that's your foreign-derived intangible income. You get the 37.5% deduction, which again takes us down to 13.125 effective federal rate for the years through 2025. Okay, now Mike, not just because you're in quantitative solutions. It's, and it's, it's ironic really good that with I get numbers, the numbers. Because I can tell you Paige is pretty good with numbers too, and so <laughs> but. 
you do get the numbers here. So if you could take us through that. Yeah, so here's a, a quick high-level example of uh, you know, how, how this uh, Section 250 works. Um, you know, we have a single source of income, a, a foreign royalty, um, could be a third-party uh, foreign royalty or a related party foreign royalty, which would cause you to actually have, go through a couple more steps to make sure that it was eligible uh, to be foreign-derived uh, eligible income. So if we start off with just that $100, to make this example even simpler, we decided we had no QBI. Um, and so our deemed intangible income is $100, uh, which then makes our percentage of our foreign-derived deduction eligible income over our deduction eligible income 100%. And that gives us our FDII of 100 less the 37.5% deduction gives us to a taxable income at the $62.50 which gives us a tax and an ETR of the 13.125 that Shaney had mentioned earlier. So high level example, um, obviously when we're doing this in the marketplace for real, a um, lot more complicating factors and, um, but just a quick high level of how, how the math works. Thank you. Okay, now we're gonna move uh, to our issues and observations. We've been through uh, sort of what the rules are, the mechanics of the rules. Now we're gonna start talking about all the open questions uh, that we have as a result of having some new rules put upon us. So um, with that, uh, we'll move to our next slide, which is issues and observations. Yeah, so the deduction eligible income, as was mentioned before, you know, is, is gross income without regard to all the provisions mentioned in the prior slides over deductions that are properly allocable to such gross income. So the, the big question out there is what principles are going to you know, tell us how to get deductions over to our deduction eligible income or foreign derived uh, eligible income. And so there's probably two uh, potentials out there. There's 861 principles. There could be 482 principles. Um, you know, really, at the end of the day, we're waiting on guidance to figure out which one of those or both potentially. Um, could could be driving uh, driving the bus per se on where deductions go. Um, you know there were former drafts of the bill that got enacted that kind of gave a lean towards one versus the other. Um, we have other regimes um, throughout time that have gone one way or the other or both. So I think really it's 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 uncertain which way it's going to go, and I think we're just waiting on guidance uh, to figure out you know how do we get deductions over to these uh, two different buckets. It seemed like when I when I look at the rules here, it, guidance. We talked about the guidance. We talked about the rules, and it's really putting a lot of new terms out there. It seems like definitional guidance is really one of the big things we're going to need to get here. What do these terms mean? What does it mean to the to the satisfaction of the of the commissioner? What is it? You know, what do all these terms mean? And if that's going to come in the form of regulations, we're going to get presumably proposed regs, and we're going to wait for those final regs. It's going to take some time. So in the interim. We're going to live with a lot of these issues and observations I think we're going to continue to talk about here. Mm -hmm. So, Shini, um, we have another list of, of issues as we click through here, um, and I'll turn that over to you. Okay, thanks, Mike. So, another issue that has come up is with respect to how do you determine who the taxpayer is that derives the foreign-derived deduction-eligible income in the context of a domestic partnership? So say you have a domestic partnership uh, that earns qualifying foreign-derived deduction-eligible income. And say that domestic partnership has corporate partners. So the question is, 
could the corporate partners be treated as if they sold the products or as if they provided the services that resulted in the generation of the qualifying foreign-derived deduction eligible income that's earned at the partnership level, such that the corporate partners could be eligible for the FEII deduction benefit. I think the uh, footnote in, uh, in the conference report, footnote 1525, is, is helpful in this regard. So that footnote provides that in light of the FEII and guilty deduction, the conferees expect the secretary to provide guidance similar to that provided under the toll charge or the transition tax uh, for basis adjustments under Section 705. And so that footnote could be read to imply that you know, Congress intended for corporate partners to be eligible for the FDII deduction benefit, because otherwise, basis adjustment guidance under Section 705 in the context of FDII would not be necessary. Further, separately stated items that are allocated to a partner generally retain their character uh, under Section 702B as if that partner had directly incurred that item. And, and therefore, based on those observations, it seems that a position that the corporate partner of a domestic partnership that earns qualifying foreign-derived deduction eligible income could be eligible for the FDII deduction, could be a supportable position. Another issue that has been observed, and Paige alluded to this earlier, is the big heavily debated question of what constitutes foreign use. So in the context of a sale of a product by the taxpayer to a non-US person, what constitutes foreign use? Generally, foreign use means the use, the consumption, or the disposition without the United States. In the context of products that are sold to a non-US manufacturer for further manufacturing, there's a footnote in the conference report that is helpful. Footnote 1522 of the conference report provides that if a taxpayer sells component parts to non-US persons for further manufacturing or processing, that that sale qualifies as foreign use. So looking at that footnote, it seems to imply that a sale of a component part to a non-US manufacturer, even if that non-US manufacturer ultimately sells the final product back to the US, that the sale to the non-US manufacturer could still qualify for foreign use. However, it is less clear in the context of a sale where the sale is in the form of a license. So for example, say a US taxpayer licenses IP to a non-US person, and that non-US person uses that license to service a US market. It is less clear whether the license by the taxpayer to the non-U.S. person could qualify for foreign use. I think. I, I, I think you've got a, a lot of history in 954 of the, the foreign use, so we're going to be turning to 954 a lot. What is manufacturing? That includes substantial contribution and other things too, right? Because that is manufacturing. Um, but you, you immediately think of, okay, so the American car manufa or tire manufacturer sells cars 
tires to a European car manufacturer and they come right back, is that going to be foreign use because they put them on, on the car and it becomes a component part of the car, or is it really coming back in? I mean, there's going to be a lot of questions when we start getting into this facts and circumstances, so it will be interesting and we'll be looking for that guidance. Exactly. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.